And so we thank you so much, Father, that even in our unloveliness and our broken sinfulness, you, out of your love and kindness, came seeking. And thank you for the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And thank you that we can stand forgiven in your presence today and enjoy times of worship like this where we can join our voices and tell you that we love you. And Father, may we follow through as an act of worship and show our love out of our obedience of life. And so we reach with anticipation for our Bibles, grateful that you've communicated to us so that we have your instruction and we have a clear word and we know, Father, that our love is best expressed through our obedience to your word. So teach us now through your word, through the working of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Thank you for the blessing that it always is to start our week like this on Sunday morning. Strengthen our legs, strengthen our feeble arms, clear our minds, and give us a renewed tenacity and determination to discipline ourselves unto obedience, that we may bear the fruit of righteousness in our lives. So take your word and go to work in us through it, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in case you haven't heard, next Sunday night... The Pittsburgh Steelers and the Green Bay Packers are going to play in the Super Bowl. Now, you can hardly state how unimportant that game really is. It has to be one of the greatest hyped, uh, most paid paid attention to meaningless games in the whole world, but it is a lot of fun. And uh, I've been paying a little bit of attention. I I guess I suppose I hope the Green Bay Packers win, but... um, It really doesn't matter if you stop and think about it. But I'm looking forward to watching the game and uh, eating a little food and being with friends next Sunday night. Um, This week on Friday afternoon, uh, I've been taking about a three-hour job and stretching it into weeks and weeks and painting one of the bedrooms of our upstairs for Janny Baby. And uh, I was listening to ESPN Radio. Now, for those of you who don't care about the Super Bowl, you don't even know who the Steelers and the Green Bay Packers are, and you certainly don't know what ESPN Radio is. That's about sports and football and stuff like that. And I was uh, fatigued with uh, political talk radio, and so I flipped over to ESPN Sports Radio, and I caught a snippet of a little interview You have to understand that there's two weeks from the last playoff game when they determine who plays in the Super Bowl until the Super Bowl happens, and so they fill it with with what they call hype. It's meaningless talk. It's speculative. It's all about all things football and sports and who played in every Super Bowl game and all kinds of stuff, and they actually have too much time on their hands and they run out of things to talk about. So they had called this guy up on the phone, live on the radio, uh, who used to be a big lineman for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I have no idea what his name is. I can't remember, and I don't care. But the point was this. It was an interesting interview. Um, They were talking about a time when the Steelers, they've been to the Super Bowl before, they... um, this guy had played, and he was 39 years old at the time. This was a few years ago when Bill Cower was still their coach. 
And this guy um, was 39 years old, and he received a call from Bill Cower. And he was telling a story about in the middle of the season. It was the sixth game of the season. There's, what, about 15 games. So it was well into the season. Coach Cower calls this guy, like on a Monday afternoon, and his linemen, Coach Cower's linemen, had evidently were getting injuries one after another. And so he called this big man up, and he says, I need you to come in and practice this week, hit the weight room, and then uh, play for us next Sunday afternoon. Travel with the teams and, and play. And Bill Cower got this guy all fired up, and he said, yeah, I'll be there, coach. I'll be ready to play. He hangs up the phone. He spends the rest of the evening, goes to bed. He says at 4 o'clock in the morning, he wakes up, and he thinks to himself, what in the world did I say I would go play ball for? He says, it's the sixth game in the season. I haven't had any preseason camp. He said, uh, he's telling the talk show guys this, and he said, so I called my agent at 4 o'clock in the morning and said, call Coach Cower and tell him I'm not coming. And so they laughed, the talk show guys and this guy that were on the radio, they were laughing and talking. And the guy said, so he said, you didn't go. He said, no. He said, you have to understand. And I say all this to say this. He said, you have to understand. He said, I was on the fat boy lifting plan. He said, what's the fat boy lifting plan? And I'm painting and listening in my room up there. And he said, Man, it's where you show up to the weight room, you, you do a few bench presses, you do a few curls, you do a few leg press, and that's it. No cardio, no pushing, and you eat a lot of food. And he said, it's the sixth game of the season. I can't show up on Sunday afternoon. I wasn't prepared to play ball. So I don't know what I was thinking about when Cower called me. And he told him no, and I thought about that a little bit in perspective and in light of what we've been talking about in the month of January as a church and as believers in the Lord Christ. We have been talking about living up to our potential. And I want to couch our message today in the fat boy workout plan. That is not doing our best, not being prepared when the master calls and says, I've got a job for you to do. You might say, yeah, I can do that. But really, my lifestyle is such that I am not prepared to be used of God at the level of capacity that God has his call upon us. You see, I've been concerned, as you know, that Fellowship Bible Church, as blessed as we are, that we not live below our potential. Remember how we defined potential the first week of this month? We defined it as the possibility and the capability of accomplishing what God has resourced us to do. The possibility and the capability of accomplishing what God has resourced us to do. That is, that we are called out ones. We are the redeemed ones in Christ. We're to be salt and light. And if ever we've lived in a day where there is a contrast between light and darkness in our world, it is today. And if ever there is a time for the church to be the church and for God's people to to be God's people, it is now. And I'm a little bit worried that our church has been on the fat boy workout plan. And we do a few bench presses, we do a few leg presses, but we're really not ready on short notice to engage in the, in the game, the battle, you might say. 
You'll recall that we started this month. We've been in the book of Genesis, by the way, for eons of time. We don't believe in an old earth. We believe in a young earth here. But for most of the time the earth has been in existence, we've been studying the book of Genesis. And, um, and we're going to finish it, and we're going to start next Sunday back at it. Some of you are newer to us. You've been coming since the first of the year. And I think you'll enjoy um, jumping into that tail end of the life of Joseph and the last few chapters of the book of Genesis as we wrap up. Next Sunday is communion, by the way, as well. And I trust that you will come with your heart prepared for that special time. But we took, uh, after the Christmas season, we took the month of January to just try to look at our potential and look at who we are as a church and to try to stir the pot a little bit and uh, just kind of get ourselves cranked up here a little bit for 2011 that we be the church God wants us to be. And if we're going to be the church God wants us to be, then we have to be the Christians God wants us to be, right? You recall that that first Sunday, we talked about looking up living in light of the fact that the master can return. We looked at Matthew chapter 25 and the master had gone away leaving his servants with talents of silver to invest and that they had a job to do. They didn't know when the master was going to come back and they lived with a sense of urgency that their master could come back at any time. And that's us, isn't it? That we have been left with great riches starting with the gospel and the word of God and we need to invest it. We need to work it. We're here for a reason. And we need to live looking up, that is, watching for the master to come back. The second week we talked about living light, that is, not being encumbered and not tangling ourselves with so much of the affairs of this world that we're of no heavenly good, that we just are living like we're going to live here forever. We're investing in the earth, we love this world, we love all the joys and pleasures, and we're not willing to store up treasures in heaven. We talked about that in Matthew chapter 6. We want to live in light of the master's return. We want to live, live looking up. We want to live light, not, not full of the baggage of this world, but using our resources for the cause of Christ. Then Steve McKenzie reminded us that we needed to pray hard. God is not going to use a church that is not praying. Why is that? Because if ever there is an identifying quality in a self-reliant Christian, it is prayerlessness, right? The reality of fact is that prayerlessness proves to me my lack of a felt need for dependence upon God. And so God just doesn't work through prayerless people. And so if we're going to be the people God wants us to be, we've got to be praying people. And then last week we talked about fearing God. We talked on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday about being willing to live out our faith in real ways, sometimes in hard ways, like the two Egyptian midwives who stood up against the king of Egypt for the cause and sanctity of human life. And they put their faith on public display. And they feared God more than they feared man. And their faith worked out that way. Well, this morning I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12 to another relatively familiar passage probably to many of you. However, there are others that this might be fairly new to you and uh, it's always enjoyable to, to teach God's word to folks who are receiving it early on in their Christian experience or you just haven't been exposed to much Bible teaching. But this is a relatively familiar passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 12 where the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Rome, that's why it's called the book of Romans, and some of you who are new to your Bible, that's where the names of a lot of the, the letters, they're called epistles. Do you know that? 
Okay, an epistle is not like the wife of an apostle. An apostle is a person, all right, a messenger for God. And they wrote letters sometimes to churches, and those letters are epistles. All right, so an apostle, apostle, the apostle Paul wrote an epistle. You got it? And uh, that kind of straightens that out for a few people. Apostle, epistle, all this church word language going on. All right. And the Apostle Paul wrote most of our New Testament or a lot of our New Testament. He wrote Romans. He wrote first and second Corinthians. He wrote first uh, and second Thessalonians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. He wrote Philemon. All right. And so he wrote a lot uh, of our New Testament. And in his epistle, he's going to challenge us. And this is one of the most challenging sections on living out the Christian life and being prepared. I want to title our message this morning, or the, the outline that I'm going to give you, Five Marks of a Prepared Christian. Five Marks of a Prepared Christian. I have entitled, really, this message, Giving All. The bulletin says, let's go, because this is the last Sunday of our series, five Sundays, to say, let's go, living for Jesus, being the church that God wants us to be. And it's been happening, I want to tell you that, I have rarely lived in a season of ministry like I have in the last few weeks and months where different people, people are stopping me uh, in, in incidental meetings like at Walmart. People are emailing me. People are meeting me for lunch. And they're saying, Pastor Van, God is stirring my heart. Pastor Van, I've really, I really want to do this. The Lord is burdening me to get involved in these ministries and different things, not just you know, working within the walls of the church, but even outside the walls of the church. And that's what this series really is, that the church would be the salt and the light that God has really called us to be. And so this morning, I want us to look at Paul's letter to the Romans and jump in at Romans chapter 12. And I want us to pick up out of this passage five marks of a prepared Christian. As I said, I've titled this Giving All because this is not, this is not the fat boy workout plan for Christians. This is being prepared. This is really being ready to be used of God. And I want this to kind of just wrap up our thinking for the month of January that the Spirit of God would have the fodder to work in our hearts and minds now the rest of the year that He would continue to permeate through our congregation that we as individuals would be prepared Christians so that when we come together, our church would be used of God in a way that um, we, we have rarely experienced. I don't know what God's going to do or what He wants to do. Probably some of it's hard things. I know He wants us to be faithful to His Word. He wants us to love one another and grow in our love for Him, take good care of each other. He wants us to reach our community. Let's just see how God's going to work. But God cannot work if we're on the fat boy plan, God has to have prepared people. Let's read our text, and I think you'll see what I mean, all right? Romans chapter 12, begin with verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good and pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, 
but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. That's the church. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, for example, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Let's just stop right there for our text this morning. Five marks of a prepared Christian. If we are prepared Christians, we will come together corporately and be a prepared church. Let's jump into it right away at verse 1 there. The first mark of a prepared Christian is he is surrendered to God. We're going to parallel this, okay? So we're going to talk about it at the, at the level of individuals. We as individuals, a prepared Christian is surrendered to God. A prepared church is a surrendered church, okay? Notice that the Apostle Paul uses the bridge in the NIV. It starts out, therefore, I urge you, some of you, and you remember memorizing this when you were a young person, and out of the King James, it would say, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. It started out, I urge you, and that's actually the order in the Greek text. He starts out with, I beseech you, or I beg of you. That's translated in our NIV, I urge you. It's an interesting word, this beseech from the King James Bible, I beg of you, I urge you. It comes from a Greek word that has the definition of one coming alongside of. Some of you might know that Greek word. It's paraclete. It's used sometimes as a name of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's our, not parakete, but paraclete. It's a Greek word that means one who comes alongside of to encourage. And that's the word urge right there. So one of the things you know when we jump into this passage, when he says, Paul says, therefore I urge you, He's not coming in with a big stick to club them. He's coming alongside of them as Pastor Paul to put his arm around them and say, come on, let's go. Let's get with it. He says why we want to get with it. Look what he says. I urge you, therefore, the next word, therefore, brothers, in what? In view of God's mercy. What's he talking about? You always need to know in the Apostle Paul's writing that therefore is a bridge word. He has, he has built a foundation. He does this in numerous of his letters, as in Galatians and Colossians and Ephesians. He does this. He has a pattern of starting his book by, by writing uh, at the level. Lots of times it's complex. I don't know if you've noticed that Paul is a little bit difficult to understand. Even the apostle Peter said that in the last part of 2 Peter. He said that Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. He writes kind of deep theology, Paul does. He was a very smart man, very highly educated, and he wrote some things, it was tremendous stuff, and of all of his writings, Romans is probably as technical in a lot of ways and as deep theology as you're going to get. And he does that in a pattern of his books. He writes about the doctrines of our faith, the doctrines of our salvation, but then he breaks it off and he will bridge over. And then he will say, therefore, or as a result of that, and then he will end his letter with practical instruction for Christian living. 
The idea is this. You don't just go out there and live. You have knowledge. You have insight. He teaches you theology. He teaches you the realities of what it means to be in Christ, to have your sin forgiven, to be born again, to have the power of Christ in you. And then he says, therefore. And and when he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, for 11 chapters in the book of Romans, he has been writing deep theology and the realities of our salvation. He has started out at the beginning about how we all sit in the chair of condemnation. And apart from the grace of God and the reality of salvation, we would pay for the penalty of our own sin. But that God, who is rich in mercy, comes in and out of his kindness, he saves us. And it's just a powerful reality to... Uh, talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ even, talking about our justification and so forth. All of these great doctrines of our salvation. And that's what he wraps up in one phrase in chapter 12, verse 1, by saying, in view of God's mercy or the compassions of God, everything I've been teaching you for 11 chapters, he said. In fact, you can look at it real quick. Take a look, flip back. An example is like chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, there's that bridge word again. We have been justified through faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access into faith, into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. And he goes on and on. Look at it, 8.1. He says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he's just building. He's building the realities of, our, of the doctrines of our salvation. We're justified by faith. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, 8.1. We've been set free from the law of sin and death through the spirit of life that comes through Jesus Christ. And he's just building and he's teaching. And then he gets to chapter 12 and he's going to talk about the practicalities of our Christian life. Now, as a result of this great salvation in Christ. By the way, do you sit here this morning as a born-again Christian? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? If we went back to the beginning of Romans and worked through, would you understand what it means when he says in chapter 3 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? That is that none of us has a righteousness of our own that can get us into heaven. And in fact, it even gets worse by the time he gets to chapter 6 talking about our salvation. He says that the wages of that sin is death. We're all sinners. We're all going to die. We all have to pay the penalty for our own sin. But he interrupts it, doesn't he? With such a great love. And the fact that God, apart from, it, apart from uh, even in the light of our own sinfulness, the wages of sin is death, he says then, but the gift of God is eternal life. How? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. You don't get to heaven by going to church. You don't get to heaven by counting beads. You don't get to heaven by putting money in the offering plate. I mean, it's all good to do good things. But God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. And that's what Paul's talking about in all of the book of Romans. That we sit in the seat of condemnation. And apart from these mercies, the, the fact that God so loved us even in our sinfulness that he gave Jesus Christ that we can be born again. I hope that's you this morning. That if someone were to ask you this question or if God were to look at you and say, hey, bud, why should I let you into my heaven? I don't think God will talk like that, but especially if you're a girl. They say, why should I let you into my heaven? 
Don't even start to say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Uh, I, I went to Sunday school. Um, you know, I did all, I did this. And God definitely, nowhere in the Bible is there this grand scale where all my good works might outweigh my bad works. If God looks at you, if you die today and God looks at you and says, why should I let you into my heaven? Do you know that there's only one answer? There's only one answer. You know what it is? I don't deserve your heaven. But, but I've been justified by faith, putting my trust in what Jesus did for me. He took my place on the cross. And he's given me his righteousness and he's taken away my sinfulness. And so a holy, righteous God can look at me as a redeemed one, as a righteous person. That's what he's talking about here, about all of these mercies. In view of God's mercy, but notice what he says, what he calls for. Number one, he's calling for surrender to God. Look what he says. I urge you, as a result of everything I've been teaching you about God's compassion and your salvation for 11 chapters, I urge you now, I come alongside you and put my arm around you and I challenge you and I walk with you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Isn't it interesting that what he calls for is our body to be surrendered? That's an interesting thing. He doesn't call for our mind. He doesn't call for our heart. He says your body. That's interesting, isn't it? I wonder why our body. I think one reason is that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You want to flip there real quick? Turn to your right, just a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And here we discover that our body, our literal physical body, is the temple of the Spirit of God. That's interesting, isn't it? And we sometimes forget that. We sometimes think we come into an auditorium like this and some people, like if you look around, you see in our auditorium there's sockets in the floor where we can set up volleyball posts and we literally play volleyball in here. We take down the chairs. We take down the chairs and kids play games in here. We have a basketball hoop through those double doors that we bring out and put against that wall and crank it up and we play basketball in here and we eat food in here. And some people say, my, that's the sanctuary, isn't it? No, it's not. No, the, you know, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But this is just a this is a room to be used. Now, that doesn't mean that we should trash it or that we, you know, this is an important room. It's where we meet to worship God. And that is important. But the sanctuary, the dwelling place is what that word means, is the life of the believer. Maybe if this was the Old Testament and this was the temple and there was a holy of holies, you could say God dwells there. But in the New Testament, God indwells our body. That's an amazing reality. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's start with verse 18. Because he's arguing why they should separate from sexual immorality and sin. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man or a person commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. That's an interesting concept. But he goes on to argue... Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. It only goes for logic and the sake, for the sake of a consistency of logic that if we can honor God with our body, then we can dishonor God with our body. And Paul is saying, because you're saved... And at the moment of your salvation, what he's saying, the Holy Spirit, the member of the Trinity God, the triune Godhead, dwells the believer. 
That's an amazing reality. You can't feel him. You can't touch him. But it's a spiritual truth. And he literally dwells within the body of the believer. And so the Apostle Paul is calling for a surrendered life. And specifically, he wants us to surrender our bodies. As, notice what he, back in 12.1 of Romans, as a living sacrifice. Now that's an Old Testament concept. That's an Old Testament concept. It's kind of foreign to us. In our culture, it's become really um, uh, marginal. It's become really, um, I guess, politically un- incorrect is the best way to say it, to kill animals. You know, it's like, um, you know, you, we, we kind of know that cows have to get killed to eat a Big Mac and stuff like that. But in the Old Testament, it was a very real thing where animals were killed in front of the family as part of their worship of God and as part of the symbolism of the reality of the fact that when sin exists, it always brings death and that sin can only be forgiven through the shedding of blood. And so that's why the father of the family might bring a sheep or sometimes a goat, sometimes pigeons, depends. And there were different feasts and different kinds of sacrifices Some did not involve animals. Some were grain offerings and things. But what they would do is they would bring an animal. This is before Christ died on the cross. And it was all symbolic in your Old Testament of what Christ would do when he died on the cross. And in the Hebrew mind, they totally understood this. And they took, the papa would take a sheep or a little lamb. It had to be a spotless lamb without blemish. You've heard that kind of talk. And then he would bring the children around and and uh, sometimes, depending on what he was doing, he might lay his hands on its head and in, in this picture, in a symbolic sense, transfer the sin of the household on the, onto the animal. And then he would take out his killing knife and kill it. And the blood would flow right there in front of everybody. I've thought about doing that at day camp one year. <laughs> I thought, that's a great illustration, you know? Bring in this little lamb. Come on, boys and girls. Come on, boys and girls. Get around. Now, we're going to talk about how sin always brings death and that apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, take it by between the ears, hold it up, quick! All the kids go home. The Fellowship Bible Church would have a lawsuit on his hands, probably, right? But that's the imagery. What, it's, it's the reality that an animal that had been made into a sacrifice was given completely over. It's the picture of when Abraham took Isaac. Remember when we had that message and Abraham put Isaac on the altar? And Romans uses Abraham arguing that about his justification was by faith alone. And that because his faith was so strong that then he backed it up with his works that he was going to plunge the killing knife into his son of promise, the one through whom God promised to bless the world. And he would plunge his killing knife into that boy, believing through faith that God would raise him from the dead. What an incredible moment in the life of that man, Abraham. You talk about faith. He didn't even know about resurrection yet then. We know about it. And God stopped him. Remember, the angel stopped him and said, there's a ram caught in the thicket. Okay, all of that. That is what God is calling us to at a practical level in our Christian experience, we are to surrender like a living sacrifice. 
get up on the altar and let God kill us so that we die to self, so that this body doesn't control us. Don't we live in a really body-sensitive culture? You think about this body being called to be sacrificed over. I'm not saying literally go commit suicide, anything like that. It's a spiritual reality. But he's calling for us, spiritually speaking, to offer our body. Why our body? Because our body is where the battle is fought, isn't it? You know what it is to be redeemed on the inside. You know what it is to have the old ways forgiven, to be a new creation in Christ. And then all of a sudden, bam, your body is craving for some of the old ways. I know people that can't stop stealing. People who can't stop cussing with their tongue. People who are overwhelmed with, quote-unquote, an addiction in their minds of things that they fantasize about. Our feet that want to go places they shouldn't go anymore. Not to speak of just the general way our whole culture is always focused on the body. The body, the body, the body. It's interesting. We do all kinds of things to it now. We've had this thing going at our house. Maybe you've experienced it at your house. i got a 13-year-old boy. The boy won't wear a coat in cold weather. I don't know what that's all about. I think it's dumb. You know? It's like, why won't you wear a coat? Because why? Because of how I look in the body. It's the body. All that wraps up a whole lot about us, doesn't it? All our focus on our faces, on our hips, on the size of our biceps, on everything about our body. The way our hair looks. I'm not going to do that. My, my hair isn't right. We have to reschedule our vacations because of hair appointments. <laughs> we need to surrender that over to God. That's crazy. We are really body sensitive. It's, it's no wonder then that Paul says, listen, on a day-to-day basis, I call for you to to surrender your body over to God. Let Him be in control of your life. But we don't like that, do we? We're a bit afraid of surrender, aren't we? Why? When it comes to our personal lives, our personal agendas, we're control freaks, aren't we? We're afraid God might ruin our good times. Afraid that God might just take away some of the things that I really love. Listen, the thing about surrender that is so great is that when you experience surrender, there's great joy in being fully yielded over to Christ. There is a great freedom. A freedom from sin and a freedom from the plague of this world. Lord, here I am. I'm your servant and I surrender myself to you. The call for surrender. God uses surrendered people. God uses a surrendered church. Well, we must uh, move along. That's point one. Five marks of a prepared Christian. Number one, he is surrendered to God, isn't he? Let's see what else Paul says here in this passage. Notice what he says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now look what he says. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The second mark of a prepared Christian, the second mark of the church God uses is that they are sanctified from sin. They are sanctified from sin. I'm throwing another church word at you. Sanctified. Do you know that word? 
It's kind of an interesting word. He captures it in the word holy there. We are to be living sacrifices that are to be holy. Holy has the idea, and in this context, it's the idea of a sanctified holiness. It is separated from our sinfulness and usable to God. We are away from one thing and we're given over to God. It's sanctified. If we studied our Bible, let me make this really quickly, and I'll just, I want to drop something in your brain that's a theological concept, a little doctrinal teaching here at a little deeper level for some of you that might not know this. But of all the words of our salvation, and sanctified is a salvation term, kind of like justified. Do you remember a few weeks ago when I was sitting on a stool up here and I had the sin file and I had the Jesus file? Remember that? We were talking about justification. That is that when God looks at me, I'm, I'm a sinner, but when I confess my sin and by faith receive what Christ did at the cross for me, and I receive the righteousness of Christ... At the moment of my salvation by God's grace through, through faith, there's a moment, a judicial moment, when God slams down the gavel, so to speak, and I am declared righteous once and for all. That's justification. I have been declared righteous, and that's what I was showing you, that the Van Marceau sin file is gone, and the only place Jesus can find my name in heaven is under the Jesus righteous file. That's a great concept. And that's one of many things that happen the moment of our salvation. Instantaneously also at the moment of our salvation is the reality of our sanctification. We take the word sanctification and we divide it up into three parts. This we will call our positional or our past positional sanctification. That is... I recognize I'm a sinner, God. I know that I deserve to die from my sin. And Jesus took my sin. And by faith, God, I'm asking you to forgive me. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again. Father, make me your child. Here I am. And I'm born again. There is a moment, an instant moment, where I am, yes, declared righteous once for all. That's justified. But I am sanctified. God separates me from my sin. That's what sanctification means. He separates me from my sin. And he turns me to Jesus. And that is like a positional reality. I am sanctified by Christ through the shed blood of Christ from my sin. But how many of you know that even after you're saved, you want to sin? Huh? You want to sin, don't you? You want to think thoughts, you want to say words, you want to get angry and throw a wrench down. You look at some guy's bass boat and you, you get an attitude about all the ways God's let you down because you don't have that bass boat and you maybe even envy and all kinds of, all kinds of ways that we sin, right? We don't even have to go there. We all are good at it. But we're born again, aren't we? We're saved. We haven't lost our salvation. And positionally, I've been sanctified. God separates me from my sin. But have you noticed how some people sin less than other people? They've been walking with the Lord. I used Wayne McKenzie this morning. How many? I said, raise your hand if you think Wayne McKenzie even sins anymore. <laughs> Pearl Cavender raised her hand. <laughs> she's the only one. I said, that's because she's best friends with his wife. But haven't you looked at people like that that have been walking with the Lord like 50 years and they don't struggle? It's like, he's not trying to like go out on other women, go out with other women and go get drunk and go do things and go burn down the neighbor's house and go, you know, it's, it's like, it's not a problem. Like, 
the level of things that he's working on, that is what we call progressive sanctification. The Bible teaches us that if we think we don't sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 7 says it. We deceive ourselves if we think we don't sin. He's writing, he's talking about believers in Christ. And so, yes, I'm positioned in Christ, and, I'm, and then the rest of my life, I'm in the process of sanctification. I want to be growing in Christ. Hopefully, 10 years from now, I am a Christian at a higher level than I was 10 years ago. And I'm growing in Christ. And in fact, if you're not growing, you got issues. It's, it's almost spiritually the reality of somebody physically. If you're phys- physically stop growing before you're mature, you're supposed to grow. You got issues. You got all kinds of problems. And you got to go to children's hospital and get it figured out. And spiritually, we never stop growing as we grow to conform to the image of Christ. And then the third part of sanctification that we divided in theologically is our future or our... I forgot the word. It's over there in my notes. It's... Um, but it's our, um, our final sanctification. It's when we're in, in the presence of Christ and it's all done. Okay? And it is, a, it, is, um, it is a perfection. It's our perfect sanctification. We are perfected in glory. And we'll shell off out of this body. We will see Jesus for who he is and we will be like him, it says. All right? So there's a positional. There is a progressive where I'm growing in Christ. And then there is the perfection that I attain finally, ultimately, in the presence of Christ. The Apostle Paul is calling us to die to sin on a daily basis and to be progressing in our sanctification. We are to be separated from sin and to be growing. Let's look at a, at a passage that he wrote in Romans chapter 6. Quickly, please. And I'll click off the last few points. Romans chapter 6. And notice what he says in verses 11 through 14. This is about being sanctified from sin and offering our, and freeing our body from sin. In the same way, Romans 6.11, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. What is the subject or the, the noun subject in verse 12? Who? Don't you, isn't that one of those sentences when you're diagramming it? You have to put in parentheses out front. You, right? You. Verse 12. You, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body for him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. You see, we don't make excuses for our sin. We fight against it. And through the power of Christ in us, in our redeemed nature, fighting against the flesh, we overcome sin through sanctification, separation from sin. Let's look at the third mark, the third mark of the prepared Christian. Beginning with verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. This is Romans 12, 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The third 
mark of the prepared Christian is that he is separated from the world. You know what I'm getting out of this? I'm getting out of this passage that Christians are supposed to be different. I'm getting out of this passage that everything from the way my body looks, the way I take care of my body, and the way I interface with the world around me is to, is to show the mark of Christ in me. I'm not to act the same. I'm not to look the same. I'm not to enjoy the same pleasures, the things that would turn me away from Christ. Let's take a look at what he says here. Do not conform any longer. Conform here is the idea of an impression. I remember in shop class taking a piece of two-by-four block when I was in junior high and whittling it and working it for a few days in class as our project was, taking this block of wood and shaping it into a race car. And then we learned about injection press plastic molding and we made a plastic mold that vacuumed over the top of that wooden block with plastic and then it hardened and then we pulled the block out of the plastic and then we poured plaster of Paris in the mold and then we took the plastic off the mold and then we had our little plaster of Paris race car that we could paint up. What did it do? It fit into the mold. It was pressed in to shape and look just like the rest of the world. Now, clearly, the Apostle Paul says in other places that we are in this world. We can't escape it. We're bound for heaven. But we're not to be of this world. What are we talking about, the world? We're talking about everything that is the mindset, that is the drive, that is the worldview, the philosophy, the whole attitude of everything that is counter Christ, everything that is outside of God and His Word. All right? And there's a lot of it. A lot of us, we we pay a lot of money, for example, to go watch stories on a big screen that have a whole lot to do with everything that is of the world. It is counter Christ. It is, it is, it's just not the way God designed it to be. And I understand storytelling and all that. But we make a lot of excuses, don't we, to enjoy a lot of things that the world enjoys. In fact, we got a little problem going in the church, don't we? We don't want to be surrendered. And being sanctified from sin is a hard process. It's a fight. And then to be separate from the world might mean like I wear a coat in the wintertime to take care of my temple instead of going out there half naked. You know, it's like I'm freezing to death. That's the way my uncle would say it. Naked. What's wrong with us? What is wrong with us that we love this world so much? What is wrong with us that we're so embarrassed that the world might perceive us as being somehow uncool or unintelligent or weird? How can you follow after Christ as a surrendered Christian and not be weird compared to the rest of the world? And what is wrong with us that we want to enjoy some of the tasteless, some of the sensual, some of the flesh-adulating things of the world? Rather than saying, no, no, I have been surrendered. I'm in a process of sanctification. I am sanctified from the world and separated, separated from sin. And now I want to be separate from the world. But instead, we live in a time where like hipster faith, that's actually a phrase. That was on the cover of my Christianity Today magazine the other month. When, When Christ meets cool was the subtitle. What is that all about? Who cares what's cool? I'll tell you what's cool. Obedience to the word. 
And isn't it funny that the things I'm supposed to conform to, if I'm going to be cool with the world, are like the weirdest things I ever saw. You know, it, it might even include like stretching my earlobes. It might be it's putting pins places I don't want to put pins. It's putting color on my, it's just doing wearing wearing weird fashion. You got to watch out for those fashion people. They're out to sell clothes. You know that, right? And they will tell you something looks good that does not look good. It's like, no, I'm not saying, you know, clothes are of the world, but they're for Christians too. We know that in the Bible, right? And so we do have this war, don't we? This tension. How do I live? What do I live for? What's, what's of the world and what's not? But what I sense for many of us is we're just very, very comfortable in the world. Very comfortable. Doesn't bother us at all. In fact, there's been like a great pride. It's not a new concept because it was in the Corinthian church as well. Where we took pride in the amount of sin that our grace could cover. Oh, that stuff doesn't bother me at all. I can be around it. I can handle it. No, you can't. And God called us out from it. And God called you to go up on the altar and die. And God called us to be separate from the world. It's not that big of a deal, is it? Because if my master comes, I want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come enter into my joy. I don't do all that for my salvation. I do it as a result of my salvation, you see. And so I need to be listening to the Spirit of God. I need to let the Word of God permeate. So I'm to be sanctified. I'm to be surrendered to God, sanctified from sin, separated from the world. Notice that I am satisfied by the will of God. Number four, I am satisfied by the will of God. Doesn't it feel good to walk in obedience? You know what it feels like to know you're where God wants you? It just feels good. It starts with just taking the practical word of God and putting it in. By the way, this lack of conforming in verse 2 is, I, I need to mention, it happens by being transformed through the renewing of our minds. And the word transform there is metamorphosis, changing from the inside out. Transformation by the renewing of the mind. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, I believe it is, that we are to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. At the end of the first service, there was a couple girls sitting in the back, a couple young women sitting in the back of our auditorium, and they were reciting their memory work to one another. I think it was Psalm 139, and they told me that last year they memorized the book of Philippians together. You know what that is? That is taking the Word of God and renewing your mind. So that you know how to think. The reason that we don't think different than the world is because we really don't have the Word of God in us like we should. That's another one of those uncool things that churches aren't supposed to do anymore. Have a, like a Bible memory program. Memorize Scripture. I think we're going to be seeing that pretty soon. For the renewing of the mind. He goes then on to say about the grace given to me. Every one of you get involved in your church. Serving in the church is a prepared servant quality number five. And you can read about it. Notice what his emphasis there is. That in humility, as I'm connected with the body, I am enthusiastic about my involvement. I was referencing earlier about a period of time right now at Fellowship where people are, are coming to me with ideas. It's kind of hard at the church because I don't want the pastor and the elders to be like a lid on what God is doing. 
I don't want somebody to come to me and say, Pastor Van, God is putting this on my heart. Oh, you can't do that. We can't afford it. Or you can't do that on our property, you know. And so sometimes it's hard for leadership to know what is God doing and what is God doing through the the dreams and the heartbeat of, of his people here as you get excited to take what God has resourced us to do and you're taking it to another level. I only want to encourage you. I mean, in a way, it can just be like a crazy, out-of-control mess around here if everybody just starts doing what they want to do. But are you involved and where are you gifted and what does God have you doing? And For some people, it's like the light switch is flashing on for the first time. It's like, I don't do nursery and I don't do junior church, although we need junior church workers, bad. And I don't, you know, but I always wanted to do this like a Christian version of Girl Scouts, you know, whatever. Do it. Get it cranking. Let God work in you. Let your giftedness, whatever it is, enthusiastically drive. If it's, if it's leading, lead. If it's speaking, speak. If it's encouraging, encourage. If it's contributing, give and do it well. That's what his point is there. That's a prepared Christian. He's identified what his giftedness is and he's doing it. He's doing it. Well, I don't know how God wants to use this message in your life. I know this, that it's not really all that complicated. But I do know that if we don't pay attention to these marks of what God is doing in me as a believer in Christ, He will not use us. If Fellowship Bible Church is not filled with surrendered, sanctified, separated serving people, we won't be the kind of church that God wants us to be. We will live below our potential and the master can come back and catch us by surprise. We've, there's the month of January for God to stir our hearts, for God to challenge us. You remember something that I say quite a bit. It's this, um, change cannot occur without change. You can think about it. You can roll over on your other side and keep thinking about it. But if you're not surrendered and you're not sanctified from sin and you're not separate from the world, there's only one person who can really do something about it. It's you. It's you letting the Spirit of God put His finger on the things in your life that you know don't belong there and that are holding you back because you're afraid to go the Jesus way. You're afraid to go the the altar offering living sacrifice way because it might hurt too much. Why don't you give it a try? Test God a little bit. And you might find a greater joy in your Christian faith than you've ever had in your life. We might see things happening in people's lives like we've never seen before. I'm not sure how much longer we have for our orderly way of life, for even the Lord's return. I mean, Israel's been back in the land for 60 years. All of the European Union, all of the prophetic passages of Scripture are falling into place. How much longer will it be before the Master returns? How will he find Fellowship Bible Church? Let's bow in prayer. And so, Father, take your word and uh, continue to use it through the prompting of your Holy Spirit. Give us the courage that it takes to tell ourselves the truth. And then, Lord, as only your Holy Spirit 
can do and does change our hearts and mold us and make us into your image. It's a process we know. Help us to cooperate. Forgive us for our love affair with the world. Forgive us for being more excited about completely unimportant events in our pop culture than we are about the realities of your word and what Christ wants to do in us and in our neighbors and in our neighborhood. So challenge us and change us, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name.